Will you join me in prayer? Let us pray. Fruit-bearing spirit, increase your harvest among us now, we pray. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you are saying to your church gathered here today. And in our hearing, equip us to obey. All these prayers we make in the name of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. Amen. This Wednesday at session, uh, Josh was sharing the exciting news that we've begun a new chorister choir program for our children here at the church. And in his comments, Josh mentioned that part of what's so enjoyable about teaching children who are new to singing is that although they have a lot to learn, they haven't yet developed any musical bad habits, and so there's very little to unlearn, and he can get right to work teaching them to sing. And it's so often true, isn't it, that when we want to learn something new or when we want to improve in a certain area of our life, we sometimes have to unlearn certain habits before we can properly learn new things. Sometimes a golfer must unlearn a bad backswing etched in muscle memory if she wants to improve her drive with a new swing. Spouses must unlearn their defensive impulses if they want to cultivate a spirit of openness and honesty between them that doesn't inevitably lead to conflict. And pastors who live in five points within a block of four Mexican restaurants must unlearn stress eating if they want to learn to lose weight, or so I'm told. The same principle applies in our life of faith as well. Sometimes if we want to learn something new about God, if we want to grow in our faith, sometimes we have to first unlearn certain ideas about God that we may have picked up along the way. We may, to, we may need to unlearn things we've acquired, perhaps even unwittingly, from our parents, from our culture, from that crazy church we used to go to. So today we begin a sermon series called Unlearn, which aims to accomplish this kind of learning. And as we unlearn certain bad habits of faith and culture, may we learn to embrace more fully the good and beautiful truths of our Christian tradition. So with that introduction, let's turn our attention now to our readings of Holy Scripture. First from the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. This passage dovetails nicely on last week's reading and is the fourth of the Ten Commandments. I invite you to listen now for God's word to you. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male or female slave, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the resident alien in your towns, so that your male and female slave may rest, as well as you. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. 
And our New Testament lesson comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes, We do not proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Imagine a man named Tim who has experienced a lot of loss in his life over the last couple years. As so often happens, trials in his life have come in bunches, one thing after another. It started when he lost his wife at a young age in a tragic accident, and in the aftermath of that accident, his children seemed to have lost their way as well. Meanwhile, downsizing at his company has left him with constant uncertainty that he will wake up tomorrow with a job. Now, Tim is a devoted Christian and elder at his church, and despite all that he's been dealing with, he shows up at church each week and seems calm and composed. Sporting his Sunday best, he looks like it looks like nothing is wrong behind that sharp gray suit and seasonal tie. His fellow church members have begun to admire how much strength Tim seems to have. You're so strong, people comment often as he walks into church on Sunday morning. One friend told him recently, I don't know how you do it. If I were in your shoes, I don't think I could be doing as well as you. You seem to have it all together. Our passage from 2 Corinthians today reminds me of Tim. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Is there something in your life that makes you feel like that? Hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down? Surely we can all think of something. Because we all have some sense of the fact that life is hard, right? Life is hard. And in the face of the trials of our lives, we hope we'll be strong, like Tim. We hope that we can keep it all together. We hope that no matter what comes our way, we'll be up for the challenge. The problem is that our text from 2 Corinthians isn't about being strong. It's about being weak. Or to put it another way, the text is not about the Apostle Paul being strong, it's about God being strong. God is strong because we are in fact weak. Paul calls us jars of clay. 
King James Version has the great phrase, earthen vessels. We're weak because it's the creator who is strong, and the creature is not the creator. You see, I think we need to unlearn what it means to be strong. We need to unlearn that having faith means that we don't struggle, that no one notices when we are walking a hard chapter in the story of our life. We need to unlearn that having faith means we never have a bad day. Last week, I spoke with the head of a local nonprofit who asked me a question that she said she was asking all of her uh, faith partners around the city as her organization prepares for their future work. She asked, when you think about our city of Jacksonville, what keeps you up at night? It was a good question. But then she offered a caveat that I found interesting and, frankly, a bit sad. She said, some pastors have told me that the Bible says do not worry, so nothing keeps them up at night. So maybe a better way to ask you the question would be, what are your dreams for our city? And I told her what a disingenuous response it would have been if I were to tell her that I slept well every night. I don't know what those other pastors are doing, but I'm nowhere near having it all together like that. To be sure, I believe that God is in control. I believe that God's Spirit's at work in our city. I believe that Christ still suffers with those who suffer. But even still, I can tell you, I don't always sleep well. We need to unlearn what it means to be strong. And instead, we need to learn how to be vulnerable. We need to learn how to be the earthen vessels that we actually are with all of their fragile beauty. We need to learn that the trials of our lives can remind us how truly dependent we are on God, the potter who has shaped us into jars of clay, not jars of stone. Theologian Adam Nieder says that the wish to be stronger is really just the wish that life weren't so hard. We want to be more competent, we want to be people who understand how to operate in the world. We say we want to be stronger, but what we really mean is that we want to be less desperately in need of God. I think Nieder is right. And he goes on to say that Christian faith is needing God. That's what it means to be a Christian person. So you see, the danger of being strong, the danger of having it all together is that we can easily begin to forget about our dependence on God. No matter how strong we are in our faith, our dependence on God never goes away. In fact, the opposite is true. The stronger our faith, the more dependent we are on God. The more we feel capable and successful and strong, the more easily we can forget that every breath we take lies outside our own power of production and is, in fact, a merciful gift from the God of life. Paul writes in our text that we carry around the death of Christ in our bodies. Now that's vulnerability. But this isn't normally what we aspire to, right? We want to keep it all together, not carry around death in our bodies. When we tell people, wow, you're so strong, we aren't usually commending their vulnerability. But again, being strong can make us forget our inherent human weakness. And in forgetting our weakness, we forget God. 
focused instead on what we perceive to be our own steely strength. You see, this impulse to be strong and to keep it all together, this desire to flex our muscles and be the masters of our own fate and captains of our own souls, it's this impulse that actually lies at the heart of human sinfulness. Because if you read the Bible from start to finish, the central problem, recurring problem, in the human relationship with God is that we humans keep wanting to resist or deny our finitude, our mortality. We keep wanting to be in control. We keep wanting to hijack the power and the providence that only rightly belongs to God. Like the builders of the Tower of Babel, we want to make a name for ourselves. We want to have infinite capacity, like God. Maybe so that life wouldn't be so hard. Maybe so that we could be self-sufficient. Maybe so that we could rely on our own strength, no matter what comes our way. So perhaps it was to restrain our human delusion of self-sufficiency and our human will to power that God instituted the practice of keeping the Sabbath day. When you read this scripture carefully, you'll notice that the command to observe the Sabbath is really a command to admit to our weaknesses, to fess up to our vulnerability. It's a command to stop toiling away and rest for one day each week. And everyone in society, the privileged and the underprivileged alike, was to be allotted this rest. But there's more to the Sabbath than just taking a day off. According to Deuteronomy, the Sabbath is supposed to be a day in which people remember that they were once slaves in Egypt. And if it weren't for God bringing them out of Egypt, they would still be enslaved there, for they were powerless of their own strength to throw off the yoke of Egypt. It's because God was stronger than their weakness. It's because God had a mighty hand and an outstretched arm that they were able to live in freedom. Sabbath rest should serve a similar function for us. Slowing down affords us the opportunity to be reflective on all the ways that God is at work in our lives, giving us the strength we need to navigate situations that we could never navigate on our own. When we remember the Sabbath and remember in our Sabbath rest all that God does, does for us, we're drawn back to God and reminded of our need in all things of the mercy and grace that can only come from the God who sustains us. So to practice the Sabbath is to remember that we are a people in need of God, that apart from God we cannot succeed, we can do nothing, as the scripture says. To practice the Sabbath is to practice vulnerability, to be honest about our weaknesses and take the time to tend to them to open those parts of ourselves to God in order to receive God's abundance. The problem is our culture doesn't usually value rest the way that the Bible does, right? We tend to honor people who work tirelessly and endlessly more than we do people who insist on living a balanced, examined life. But sometimes we work too much because we're actually avoiding 
a confrontation with our vulnerability because we're running away from or ignoring the need to tend to some areas of our lives where we feel less competent. Sometimes we use work as a distraction, right? And this can be true of work inside or outside the home. From the 80-hour-a-week executive to the compulsive cleaner and organizer, work gives us something we feel like we can control when other areas of our lives feel like they're spiraling out of control. Both sorts of folks are trying to keep it all together rather than tending to the areas of our lives most in need of God's mercy and grace, the areas of our lives in which we feel vulnerable, like a clay jar teetering on the edge of a windowsill. Work can convince us of the illusion that we're able to take care of ourselves on our own, that practice makes perfect, that we do have it all together. Observing the Sabbath, on the other hand, gives us the opportunity to remember that God cares not only about our strengths, not only about what we're doing well, but also about our weaknesses, about the things we struggle with. God cares about what keeps us up at night. Observing the Sabbath reminds us that God wants to be invited into our vulnerabilities. So we need the Sabbath to ensure that we pause and commune with our God who is strong when we are weak. Our God who ensures that though we're hard-pressed, we're not crushed. Though we're struck down, we are not destroyed. And if we attend to this kind of Sabbath rest, we'll regularly be reminded that we are not God. That, I think, is the purpose of the Sabbath in a nutshell. Now, maybe it seems obvious to you that you are not God. But the thing is, I know a lot of people who go about their lives as if they thought they were God. Instead, a keen awareness that we're not God frees us up to live more like the finite beings that we actually are. After all, most of us know, at least somewhere deep down, that we have limits, that we can only do so much, that life is too hard to face alone. Such knowledge should be a deep-seated reminder for us that we need to rely on God's strength. The trick is actually learning to trust that when we find ourselves at the end of our rope, Christ will be there being strong for us. A lot of people in our culture avoid church because they've come to believe that church is a place for people who have it all together or people who think they have it all together. But what if the church were a place where people knew it was safe to be vulnerable and honest? A place where people could come and receive mercy and grace and hope when it finally hits them in their own life that they don't have it all together? What if the church could be a place where we all felt safe being honest with each other because we regularly receive each other gently and openly? Friends, can we be that kind of church? And not just for each other, but also for our community and for our world. I'm sure we can. But first we have to unlearn that the highest virtue is having it all together. We need to learn instead that God is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. That God honors vulnerability. We were never meant to have it all together because... 
We were never meant to go it alone. We were never meant to live this journey of life without God relying on our own strength. We were never meant to shed our dependence on God. So in light of all this, perhaps Tim's friends are getting it slightly wrong when they commend him for being strong. In fact, Tim usually feels otherwise. Most days he trudges through work with the weight of grief heavy on his shoulders. Just beneath that thin facade of calm lies a dam of tears threatening to burst forth at any moment. Tim doesn't feel strong at all. Tim doesn't have it all together. But Tim is definitely getting at least one thing right. His faith experience is to cling desperately to the strong God who knows our weaknesses and meets us in our vulnerable places. And so, sometimes Tim even manages to be gracious to himself when his grief prevents him from performing his A-game. Tim is aware that Though he is weak, Christ is strong in him, and Christ is strong instead of him, for him. You see, to have it all together is to be acutely aware of our ongoing need for God. And not just when life happens to be especially difficult, but in the peaks and in the valleys, in the highs and in the lows, in every breath we take, or rather every breath we receive. So friends, remember that it is when we feel most weak, most vulnerable, most struck down, it is then that Christ is most strong in us and for us. Alleluia and thanks be to God. Amen.